When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. This is James Cratch. Now, with the Giants having the extra long week because they're playing on Monday Night Football against the Vikings, we figured we'd give you guys a bonus midweek episode of the Talk is Cheap podcast to hold you over until Monday night. So I recently caught up with New Jersey author Jerry Barca, who just wrote the new book Big Blue Wrecking Crew, which focuses on all the stories behind the 1986 Giants, that team that won the Super Bowl, Bill Parcells' first championship team. So he's got all kinds of great stuff in there about Phil Simms, Lawrence Taylor, Mark Bavaro, all sorts of stories and, and notes that Giants fans would want to know. So this is my interview with Jerry. Thanks to Jerry for catching up with us, taking the time. Again, his book, Big Blue Wrecking Crew, on book stands now. Go grab it. Here's the interview. All right, this is James Cratch here with Jerry Barker, the author of Big Blue Wrecking Crew, a new book about the 1986 Giants, the Super Bowl champion Giants. And, and Jerry, before we start, my understanding is that you once upon a time worked for the Star Ledger, way yeah. before the NJ.com days, though. Well, NJ.com did exist. I'm not oh, that yeah. old. I don't predate the Internet. Oh, yeah. Come on now. Yeah. But, uh, yes, I did. Out of uh, I went to graduate school at Syracuse, and out of there, there was a time period when the, the ledger had two internship uh, positions, and uh, I was lucky enough to get one of them and uh, work under Steve Liebman um, in the Morris County Bureau as a municipal reporter covering uh, Parsippany. Parsippany, okay. I grew up in Morris County, so more of the western side of the county. But, yeah, I, I drive through Park Sydney every day on 287 to get to the stadium. So Nice, nice. So, Big Blue Wrecking Crew, my, my first question for you is, the one image that stood out to me the most reading the book was Bill Parcells smoking a cigarette, holding a basketball in a tunnel at Giant Stadium, waiting for Carl Banks to come play horse. How many times in reporting this story did you hear a story like that in this it was incredibly vivid to visualize, and you just kind of said, this is too good to be true. Oh, I think that's the one thing I love about the book is it, I think it's so detail-rich with stories like that. I mean, you have the, you know, I talked to players even up in New England uh, that played for Parcells when he was there as an assistant coach, and their memory of him coming out of a steam room, cigarette in hand, looking at the ice cream uh, freezer, up there in New England, I, it's, I think it's that's what I enjoy the most is it's just so detail rich and telling of who these individuals were in this situation and how they how they related to each other. I mean, Carl Banks, you mentioned Carl Banks, 
I was shocked. They were, he was the number three overall pick in 1984, and maybe there's a lot of people out there that might be listening to him be the uh, analyst on the games on the radio these days or hear him on WFAN. But, I mean, they were so hard on him. I mean, ridiculously hard on him, forcing him to do extra reps and things like that, and Parcells getting in his head, sitting in the locker room. I mean, I just think it's great stuff because it lets you know uh, and it lets readers know and fans know and people who are interested in the NFL know more about what is the real experience behind the scenes. How do these guys interact and relate with each other? So there you have Parcells being hard on Banks in practice and telling them, look, my expectations are higher for you uh, than you have for yourself. But then they have they build this bond over shooting hoops during lunch. I, I just don't think that's something people would ever expect. No, I mean, when I, when I came to that part of the book, you know, that was – the last thing I was expecting to see for a scene. You know, just to kind of piggyback on what you said about Carl Banks, one of the things that stuck out to me was, and I'll loop Phil Sims in here too, these guys, if they played today, I think, these guys would have been run out of town, declared busts, well before they had any success. Did, did you find it that way that, you know, for whatever reason, these guys who now are, are, are remembered as Titans and the Giants and are beloved by the fan base, you know, these guys had a pretty tough go of things early in their career. Do you, do you look at them and say, well, if this was 20 years later, they probably would have been out of the league? Well, it's, it's, that's a great question. I, I think with Carl's situation, he was going to play. I mean, he was going to make it. He, his is not the same as, as Phil's situation. And I actually spoke to Chris Mara about that. And Chris said, and it's because the NFL has changed. I mean, the amount of money you invest in a quarterback now and a salary cap, Phil Simms had the talent. Could he, could he not be injured was the question. But in today's NFL, you wouldn't get five years to figure that out. I think you're, you're on point. Uh, run out of town. I mean, the fans with Sims were ready to run him out of town anyway. Four of his first five years, he finished the season injured. And then he comes back in 84 and goes to the Pro Bowl. Um, you know, so he got his chance and he delivered. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a different NFL, and Sims really had a battle a lot through seasons ending and injury. And I, the, the things I found of how the fans interacted with Sims was incredible. You'd never see that today. One is because, as Phil told me, he said, look, when I was a rookie, you know, he's the number seven overall pick in the NFL. He's sharing a house with Brad Benson, renting it, in uh, Lynnhurst, New Jersey, you know, making the same amount of money as the guy next door to him who worked in sanitation. It was just a different time. So, you know, if Sims is walking down the street in New York City with his agent, sure, some fan is going to pop off at the mouth and say, hey, watch, don't trip over the crack in the sidewalk, Sims. We don't want you to get injured. So it, it was much different for him. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't think just because of the parameters of the salary cap he'd make it. But on ability, I think Sims is there. And he's probably – those guys are, you know, I don't want to take anything away from today's quarterbacks, but Sims, he, they were able to get hit a lot more, and I think they were a lot tougher. No, definitely. I mean, you know, I think the thing that struck me about Sims was that obviously most fans today know him as the guy on TV, very polished. He was not afraid to, to let – fans through the media know what he thought, which which I thought was kind of refreshing because we think of quarterbacks now as the very button-down face of the franchise, you know, Eli Manning, even Keel, never says the wrong thing. But but Phil Simms, he, he just kind of let it rip back in the day. 
He absolutely did. And there's something about Sims that I don't think people realize. You're right. They see him on CBS and he catches grief because I guess that's the trendy thing to do is to give him grief now as an announcer on Twitter or something. Um, or they know him as the guy who announces Madden. Uh, he actually told me a funny story. Is he was When I went to interview him, uh, he had been working out a couple days before, and these two kids were kind of staring at him, looking at him in the gym he was working out at, and they finally come up to him. They're like, you're so mean. And he's like, what are you talking about? And these kids were like, you know, in Madden, you're always telling me I made such a dumb play call. And I just think it's funny that a generation of people, like you said, don't know who Sims is. But, yeah, back then, I mean, he would I, – I don't think we can curse on this, but he would definitely let the language fly at the fans yes. if he needed to. And, um, and that was absolutely the case. And I think there's something about Sims. He's my favorite character in the book to research and report on because I don't think people know – about him, and I don't think they know. They might know, yeah, he's one of eight kids, and he didn't grow up easy in Louisville, Kentucky. But to get that, you know, he almost didn't get recruited to Moorhead State. It was the only place that was looking at him. Uh, at seven years old, life was, you know, such that he had to have a paper route if he wanted to buy himself school supplies. So at seven years old, he's up, you know, pre-dawn delivering the Louisville uh, Courier-Journal down there with his brothers, and he was a tough dude. I mean, he and he loved to compete, and I think you saw that very early. Uh, he just loved to compete. He'd rather compete on a Friday night and go play basketball with his friends in high school than go to a party because uh, his nature was to just be a competitor, and I think that's something that will always make it in the NFL, and I think that's something that even when he's going to pick up his dry cleaning and his dry cleaner's giving him grief, you know, uh, about how he should play quarterback in the NFL when he's in these injured years with the Giants, you know, it gave him the confidence to bounce back from that. Yeah, I just want to go back. You obviously, you, you had a municipal reporter background. When you're reporting a book like this, I have two questions. One, you said with Sims that people don't know a lot about. Is there almost a sense of amazement that, you know, I'm, you know, a guy like Phil Sims, he played quarterback in New York for the Giants. He won a Super Bowl. There's almost a sense of amazement that how do people not know these things about him? And obviously, you turn around a story in an hour sometimes you, if you cover a meeting or something. Is there ever a concern as a reporter that if you're working on a book, and I'm sure it's a multi-year process, I, I have something really good, but I, I really hope no one beats me to the punch in the next two years? <laughs> well, you know, absolutely, there's definitely that case. I, you know, and then I think there's also you get excited over things that excite you. When you have time to do a long project, you get very excited over things that other people might just be like, whatever. Like, I found it incredibly exciting that the first giant scout to lay eyes on Phil Sims was a former FBI agent from Herbert Hoover's FBI. Yeah, I was like, this is this is awesome. This is, I mean, my gosh, an FBI agent. Think about that. Those investigative, investigative skills looking at Sims and he, and he interviewed him um, at a hotel. So what was that like? And I interviewed the, this guy's widow. I interviewed his daughter and I was all excited. And I think it ends up being maybe one paragraph in the book. So there's that aspect to it. But as far as, yeah, there's information. I mean, I reported a few years ago or at least got a few years ago, you know, Nick Saban's flirtation or almost becoming, I think almost becoming Giants coach is a bit strong, but it, it was close, let's say that. And I remember John Mara telling me that, 
I'm like, oh, this is going to be good because Saban is this now guy at Alabama. And then, you know, there's a biography that comes out on Saban, and it talks about that already. So I'm like, ugh. It, you know, it is kind of a, a bit of a bummer because it's a longer process. So, But I think it's a, it, the thing that it does afford me is to be able to look at things with great depth. Uh, and also the municipal side, you mentioned that, looking at documents and, and looking at public records and things like that also are a big help to shaping a story like this. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, it was, it was a paragraph. The, the, the thing that serves me the most in this book is, you know, for those who haven't read it, and I hope they do read it after listening to this podcast, it's incredibly Absolutely. Easy. Let's make sure. Yeah. Let's pause there. You should definitely read it. Super entertaining. Lots of stuff you think you know, but maybe you don't. All right, let's yeah. go. <laughs> Big Blue Wrecking Crew. The story about Joe, the kicker, Joe Cooper, that to me, because I'm sure you, you spent a lot of time probably chasing down a kicker who was with the team for a week. And I just thought the story was great. He's living in you know basement. You know, he, you know his, his landlord is afraid that he might get swept in by the, the mob and gamblers. I mean, that to me just stood out to me as, something that you could have very easily just written a one sentence, they signed this guy for a week, and then they added another kicker. But So I guess what was your thought process in having those rich nuggets throughout the book? Well, I think it's entertaining. One is I love that you picked up on that. I love it. I love that you're a beat reporter covering an NFL team, and you picked up on it, and you enjoyed it. Because for me, I'm going back, and I'm trying to – I'm immersing myself with everything that's going on in 86 and with the Giants. And I see this guy, Joe Cooper, and, you know, I don't remember who Joe Cooper was. And it was, it was curious to me. How did he end up there? And the fact that you were an NFL kicker living in a basement in Lodi, New Jersey, of this Italian couple, you know, in, in one of those Italian neighborhoods, and they, they told him not to go behind the, the, the back of the counter at the deli because there were people there that might want to, you know, knowing that he controlled points in an NFL game, they might want to be friends with him, you know, so they warned him to stay away from there. I mean, that to me, that's the NFL. That's 1986 NFL in in North Jersey and how it was. There's a certain reality there that I don't think people realize. And to be able to deliver on that with that story uh, is incredible. And the fact that he's in that basement and I'm interviewing him, and I track Joe Cooper down, and I get that story. And he's gone in two weeks because Raul Alegre comes in. And just that's how, that's also, you know, the NFL, the cliche, and I think it's goofball stuff, but not for long. I mean, Joe Cooper was with the Giants for two weeks. He's yeah. out, and he shakes hands and wishes Raul Alegre good luck. And Raul Alegre then moves into that basement. I, I think that's so illustrative of how it worked back then. And I, I think you look at this massive thing that the NFL is now – it's hard to imagine that that was actually a reality. I cover the NFL. I can't imagine if the Giants made it to the Super Bowl this year, the starting quarterback would be taking a taxi to the Super Bowl after having watched a movie the night before. It just seemed to be a completely different era. I mean, you know, Joe Morris, his contract, he's sitting in the locker room as they're trying to hammer out his contract, you know, issues. It, just, it, it struck me, even 1986, which was not that long ago, it was such a more quaint time in the NFL, it seemed. It almost, I mean, you could have said it was 1956 and it almost would have added up, I think. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it, the book, I think, one of the great things about the book is that you get the NFL in this transition. It goes 
from it, it really it, they're taking the ruffian sport nature the North Dallas 40 style of the 70s they're transitioning away from that and into the profession because it really becomes a profession in the 90s so right here it's in this transition period so you have these sort of odd quirks you know contracts are starting to get a little bit bigger but that changes you know, after free agency kicks in, Jerry Jones becomes an owner, and that changes the television contract. So we're right before that, but we know the NFL doesn't want to be the ruffian sport that it was. So, I mean, there are those little quirks. Joe Morris, you know, here's his team's leading rusher um, sitting in the locker room, on, you know, Monday afternoon with his uniform on, waiting to hear if his deal got taken care of so he can go play against the Cowboys that night in the season opener. It's crazy. It's something that would, would not only never happen today, but there would be weeks of, you know, holdouts and discussion and debate and coverage. You know, obviously, you know, you mentioned it, you know, somewhat a lot in the book, but, you know, cocaine, drugs were a major problem in professional sports at that time. It was something that impacted the Giants' locker room. When you're writing this book, do you, do you have to make a concerted effort to, obviously you have to address those situations, but make sure that the drug issues don't kind of take over the narrative of the book? Well, I think you need to. I don't. I don't know. If it, that's. It's an interesting question. I. I'll just tell you my approach with it. Okay. So obviously there were issues, and then you. I have to ask questions of people about those issues. Uh, George Martin and Bill Parcells. You know, Parcells set up a testing arrangement outside of the collective bargaining agreement. I mean, it was something when you look at the clips and you talk to players, and especially when I was talking to players from other teams. You know, these are guys that you know don't even end up quoted in the book, but just to get a feel for the NFL at that time, I mean, it really was an issue. Cocaine went from this drug for, it was a party drug, and if you had, if you were a money kind of guy or gal, you could, you would do cocaine. It was this great thing. But right around this time period, it became more of a, you know, if you were a blue collar dude, you could go get cocaine. And in the mid eighties, you could get it anywhere. And it did impact the Giants. So it had to be we couldn't take that out of the story, you know. You, you yeah. can't do that. You can't whitewash it. So you have to address it. I actually talked to multiple people in law enforcement. There's a DEA agent uh, quoted in the book because I wanted to know what it was like in New York City at the time. I also ended up, and he's not uh, quoted in the book, but I talked to an addiction psychiatrist okay. about what it was to use cocaine uh, and why these athletes, why athletes would be drawn to use cocaine so I try to educate myself as much as possible on the issue, and it was ongoing in the NFL. I mean, it's in there. There were uh, NFL security would talk to players, stay away from it. And I thought what was interesting was the biggest concern of the NFL at the time was if cocaine, if these guys start using cocaine, they'll end up having an addiction, they'll end up owing a dealer money, and r that dealer, rather than get paid the money, will want to influence the outcome of the game. That was really interesting to me, um, and that's out there, uh, and that was what was said to these guys when they'd meet with NFL security once a year. So I think – I don't think it controls the narrative, but I don't think you can uh, – you obviously can't ignore it. I don't think the story is necessarily about drugs in the NFL. I mean, that's probably a separate book on its own, yeah. but it's definitely a part of this. And, and you heard – I mean, George Martin said, he said, look, we all have problems with it. And he was a union rep and went outside of his sort of pledge to the union because George Martin, being the guy that he is, was like, I'm going to, I want to do this right. 
And and the Giants did have trouble. I mean, you look at Malcolm Scott, their third-round tight end, drafted in 83. You know, when I was researching him, he was homeless in New Orleans, still dealing with addiction. And that was in 2014. And what also jumped out to me was, you know, you have all these off-the-field drug issues, but, you know, I guess, you know, Phil McConkie had busted up his thumb, and it, it seemed like today we talk about, you know, painkillers and opioid addiction and, and the issues with how the, the training staffs get these guys on the field when they're injured. But at least with Phil McConkie, the Giants, they didn't want to shoot up his, his thumb with painkillers. He kind of just had to go out there and tough it out. I thought that was an interesting dichotomy that off the field, the recreational drug use was, was a major issue. But on the field, it seems like compared to today, they weren't using the substances that they use now that, that could potentially be harmful to players. One is you're a very perceptive reader because I didn't even pick up on that, and I wrote the thing. So the yeah. Giants fans are in good hands or whatever beat you end up covering are in good hands with your intellect, for starters. Um, and that was one thing I did hear up and down the line with the Giants players is they did not want to, you know, we weren't shooting guys up. We weren't shooting guys up. We weren't getting shot up for things. Uh, and that was up and down the line from people. And, of course, you're talking about McConkie going into that crucial game in Washington uh, in December in 86. Right before we move on, George Martin stood out to me. He was, I mean, when, when he kind of ripped Ray Perkins at the beginning of the book, that kind of really stood out to me. Describe what, you know, what it was like to talk with George Martin. Obviously, he, he's a guy who seems to be very integral to, to a lot of the story. And when you're reporting a, a book like this and a guy like George kind of comes full-fledged out with all his thoughts, do you ever think to yourself, like, does George really understand this is going to be in a book that's going to be very popular in like a year? And is, is he going to, you know, I think he called Ray Perkins. Uh, it called him an ass. Term. I don't know an if, you have to, yeah. if we're allowed to say that, but no, he definitely he, called I him an ass. Say ass. But yeah, so All I mean, right. What, what is it like for you as, as an author when, when you're in a guy's, and it's great, you know, like, you know we're journalists. That, that's an awesome color. It's going to get people talking, but you almost kind of think as a person, because obviously, you know, it's not like when I cover the team where these guys are contractually obligated to talk to us in the locker room, you know, this, you know, he's giving you his time. You almost kind of, I don't know if hesitates the word, but think to yourself like, oh, well, I hope he understands where this is all going. Never. Not with, not with uh, George Martin, because here's the thing, James, these guys are, they won a Super Bowl in New York. They know the game better than I do. You know what I mean? They know how it's done. They know what they're saying. Um, So I don't question that. And at the same time, I, so if it wasn't a high-profile person that had, you know, cut their teeth in the New York media market, uh, yeah, I would have that in mind. And I, I have said this before. I don't think people should be surprised about what they read about themselves in print. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of, like, there's an exchange of, you know, they're going to give me their time. I'm not going to not quote them, but I also don't want them to be surprised. Uh, about what they see. So Bobby Johnson, you know, who was a wide receiver on the team that was addicted to to crack cocaine, I mean, I was very upfront with him about how it was going to go because Bobby Johnson, even though he was in New York, he hasn't been in New York for years. And this story, while some people may know it, it was never told in this amount of detail. And it was very, uh, it wasn't told from him as a source either for it. So um, I was very clear up front, I want to talk about this. Are you up for that? And, and so that's how you handle that. But I think also along the way, James, and, and I'm sure uh, as a beat reporter you come across this, there's stuff that you get that you're 
never going to tell people. Yeah. You know, there's stuff that you find out about people's lives that quite simply isn't appropriate. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to – I don't want to be that guy. There might be some journalists that want to be that guy that's like, hey, I got this, you know, salacious detail or I put two and two together and this must have happened and they don't go confirm it or something like that. That's not me. I, I, I'm going to – I want your time. I'm going to ask. I'm going to be incredibly intrusive with you to the point at times it might be uncomfortable, but we're going to, you know, keep it on that. You're going to know what's going to be out there and you want on print. Not that I'm going to hold back. Does that make sense? I hope I'm answering yeah. that question oh, the right way. That definitely makes sense. I, I get that. I, you know, when I was reading the book, that was just kind of the first, you know, one of the first kind of wow moments when, when he kind of said that. Because usually, even if a guy didn't have a good relationship with his coach, they, they come up with some sort of empty platitude, you know, neutral statement to say. But it was kind of refreshing to see that out on the page. Well, I think, and that's also the benefit of, I. they are decades removed from this. So that's the benefit I have in going to tell stories that are historic because people can say things. You know, if you go in that Giants locker room, and I doubt anybody has a problem now. They're 2-0. and It's yeah. awesome. You, you know, it's a great thing. But, you know, last year if somebody had a problem, nobody's going to say anything because that's just not how it's done professionally, uh, you know, in, in today's day and age. Now I have that benefit of years later. Now you can say it. Why, and this is more getting to your process of reporting the book, there's so many – characters in his book, so many ways to go. Why did you start in Baltimore with George Young? He's another, well, he's another guy that, um, he's the first, he hasn't been written about. Okay. Let me pause there for that. So he's another guy that hasn't really been written about. I don't think people uh, sort of know the depth of George Young. And certainly if you're a Giant fan in the Eli Manning era, you don't know George Young with depth. So I thought it was important to, to get him and get the people around him. I, and he's the first, you know, you have the fumble where the Giants invent a way to lose a game, and then he's the first step. He's the first key figure in turning around a franchise and taking an embarrassing franchise of the 70s. I mean, a laughing stock of the NFL, here's the first guy who comes in and makes it this model franchise. He's the first piece there that made that happen. So I thought that was critically important to do that. He's almost like a mystical figure, I think, for Giants fans. But when you go through the book, he had a lot of personnel successes. He also had some personnel misses. Was that one of your goals to kind of, you know, you said people hadn't written about him a lot, but I feel that when when he's discussed, it's almost like he did no wrong. But I thought your book kind of painted a much more broad, you know, all-encompassing picture of George that he had a lot of success, but there also were some decisions he made that this really did not work out at all. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to report the reality. And I, and obviously, you know, Joe Montana is the greatest quarterback ever. You'd think he won an MVP every year, the way he's mm-hmm. talked about now. I mean, I think when we look back with nostalgia, you want to hang on to the positive things. Uh, I think there is a reality, though, that my job is to report the reality of it. And, and I think if you look, I mean, George Young, when he cut Phil Sims, it, you know, his relationship was never the same with Wellington Mara. I found that out in the reporting. And you can see when he wedded himself to Dave Brown, the quarterback out of Duke, and used a supplemental 
draft pick to get him, that was sort of the beginning of the end for George Young mm-hmm. uh, with the Giants. And that has to be reported. And it's, it's interesting because I, I heard from some of the people in Baltimore and, uh, and and I've gotten a written note and a phone call from them, and uh, their take on it is you were fair. That's the best thing you could be is be fair, and I think that's what's important. I, you can't write these guys as deities uh, because we're just not. I'm not that. They're not that. They're people. You know, they're heroes to us yes. as fans or something like that. But, you know, why read a book about a, a hero? Don't we want to know what their humanity is? I mean, I think Parcells, in the book is somebody, I love the fact there's so much information out there on Bill Parcells. I love the fact that in this book you get the guy who's pre-elite Bill Parcells. You get the guy who's smoking a cigarette with a basketball under his arm. You get the guy whose star player is signing a contract with Donald Trump within days of him burying his mother, and then six weeks later, you know, his father dies, and in the middle of that, he almost loses his job. I mean, that is real deal stuff. I mean, that's life happening. When you hit a down part in life, I mean, anybody can relate to that. We've had, you have ups and downs in life. That's a downtime for Parcells. And to be able to take a reader to that and then bring them through, now he wins this championship and he's, and he's elite. I mean, he's, there's just Parcells guys and, you know, he's doing, you know, commercials with Francesa at Manny's and, you know, he, then he's, you know, he evolves into this Hall of Fame guy. But I think it's great to be able to show people what it was before then and what the humanity was there. And everything that struck me is I'm always fascinated with, with how things begin. And maybe you're mindful of this, but that Giants team, it kind of formed 25 years of the NFL because Marcellus gets hired. He hires Ernie Adams. Ernie Adams tells him to get this Bill Belichick guy. And McConkie goes to Green Bay for a couple of weeks and says, I met this guy named Tom Coughlin. Does it kind of amaze you how the direction of the league basically was, was formed on this era of giant football. I don't think people necessarily appreciate that, that the history of the NFL was kind of changed forever just because Bill Parcells got out to New York and he hired these two assistants. And well, I think between them, they have eight championships. Well, you've got, well, Perkins hired Belichick. Perkins okay. hired Ernie Adams and Belichick and Parcells. So it was Perkins, oddly. That's why I think he's sort of an important figure. And okay. then Parcells brought in Coughlin um, from Green Bay. So, but, yeah, I think it's – I think, again, you know, you're being perceptive, and I think that's important because I think, you know, people will read – people will look at this book and think, oh, it's a Giants book. Well, it's definitely a Giants book, but it's also an NFL book because of what you're saying, because there's Don Shula in it, because there's Mike Ditka also in it in the book – um, yeah, I mean, it, it, for sure, it be, it, this begins to shape the NFL. And there are, I always think it's interesting um, to go back and look at a moment. You know, how did Belichick come to the Giants? Well, it was Ernie Adams. And when I, it was funny because Dan Shaughnessy writes this profile on Ernie Adams in the Boston Globe a couple years ago. And I'm like, wait a second, that's, and I go back and look at my Ray Perkins transcription of the interview. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, to me, that's a great moment as a, yeah. as a writer and reporter. And it was Ernie Adams, this sort of uh, director of research or whatever he is with the Patriots, is a, a crucial guy in the background that brings Belichick to the Giants. That You know, you get the Gatorade splash. You get the Phil Sims, I'm going to go to Disney World. You get the, uh, you know, Lawrence Taylor and who he was as a linebacker and how that changed the game. And it's certainly the foundation for the Giants. But, yeah, there's a, 
an enormous amount of influence on the NFL and the direction of the NFL based on a couple hiring decisions. One of the people you didn't speak to for the book was Lawrence Taylor. I don't think it really impacts the book at all. I, I don't know how you feel, but I, I felt like there wasn't anything missing. But Was there any other player, coach, NFL figure that you, you didn't get to interview that you, that you really wanted to? No, I, I think, and I think you're, you know, as far as LT not talking to me, it wasn't because I didn't want to talk to him. Just yeah. one, you know, I was trying to, you know, once a week for about six months, and his agency did take questions, and then, the, you know, I, I, there's a, a, a teammate of his was playing golf with him in Florida, and I was supposed to call, you know, call me at this time. I'll be on the golf course with him. I'll hand him the phone. And the call went straight to voicemail. So I would have loved to have talked to Lawrence. I don't think the book misses anything because Lawrence has said so much. And I think what you get newly about Lawrence is his teammates' perspective on him and his teammates' perspective on their relationship with him and why, one, they love him as a teammate. And also I think what Phil Simms says about, you know, Lawrence probably still thinks I'm – some rich white boy of privilege. I I thought that was a very interesting quote yeah. from Sims about his relationship with Taylor uh, and how uh, Taylor wasn't sold on Sims. So you're right. I don't think the book misses a beat. Would it have been great to talk to him? Absolutely. I'd be, you know, clearly I would be lying if I said, no, 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 I didn't need him. I wouldn't talk to him. But, that, you know, I think, you know, you do hundreds of interviews and talk to people. I could have probably done hundreds of more interviews, uh, but there's nobody that stands out. I think there was enough people to get to to get it there in the book and have the stories and have the background material to be able to tell it. I guess I'm intrigued about the process of uh, you kind of inside baseball writing a book. Is there ever a sense that I'm done, or do you always have this fear of I could do more, but it's just deadlines coming to play? And what's it feel like to to have this book out after dedicating, I'm sure, hours upon hours of your life to it? Well. I think for me, I was done when Belichick got back to me. Okay. I think he was, I needed Belichick. When, you know, you talk about who I, like, if there were, like, if, without, I think the stuff that Belichick adds to the book is great because uh, he was very candid and very open. I think having Parcells and Sims also and being able to interview them for two plus hours a piece and get that material, that's critical. I think, Without them now, who knows, you know, if I have a book to put together. But those were pretty critical things. And Belichick, it was um, – I handed the book in way late, by the way. I mean, deadlines, oh, my gosh. I, I think my, I must have driven my editor crazy with deadlines. I handed it in only about three and a half months before it came out because I needed Belichick. And then once I had Belichick, I could really begin to piece together the rest of the narrative. And it is, uh, do I ever think that there's always more, but I think you, you get a sense. I mean, I put a few years into this, so mm-hmm. I knew it was going to come to an end. I don't think, obviously, I look, I'll look back and be like, mm, maybe this here, this there. I think you're always looking to improve things, but there is a point at which you've got to let it go and let the, you know, kind of birth the baby. Uh, and with regard to how it feels to be out, I think I'm excited. I think it's great. I think the reception of it, has been terrific, which has been, that's really been pleasing to me. I know that this book has a lot of depth and detail to it and is a good story, so I'm proud of it. You know, if people, if nobody said anything about it or, you know, James Crash didn't come to me and say, hey, let's talk about it, I'd still be happy putting my head on the pillow at night, but I think the reception of it has been great because there's been so many people uh, in the NFL that cover the NFL 
that have said such great things about it. It, it, it that definitely I, I would lie to you if I tell you it didn't make me feel good that it got recognized the way it's being recognized. So I definitely appreciate that. Last thing before I let you go. You grew up as a fan of this team. Obviously it was a very special thing for you as a kid. Was there ever any fear that I'm gonna learn things I don't want to know? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, these guys are heroes to fans. And now that you're through it, was it everything you, you thought it would be, writing this book and learning more about this team? Um, I th- it, it was a great experience, you know, as a writer and a journalist. Here's the thing I will tell you about being a fan. Um, so I was a fan. I was a crazy fan growing up. I, I've told the story. I threw up cheese whiz when uh, Sean Landetta whiffed on that punt against the Bears in the playoff game the previous year. I was nine years old. Uh, it was unhealthy for someone to be that type of a fan at that yeah. age. <laughs> but um, I also worked in sports and have worked closely with athletes. Starting at 18 years old when I went to Notre Dame, I worked in their athletic department. Uh, one of my roommates was a football player, just happened to be placed in with a football player my, my freshman year. Uh, so, And then I worked for the Detroit Lions for a year. So nothing surprised me because – it's sort of like I've already met the Easter Bunny, and I know what the Easter Bunny's like, if that makes sense. You know, okay. the, the myth is gone for me. It's definitely gone for me because, and I think that helps in my reporting because, as you know, you find when you, they're just people. They have a yeah. different profession, and certainly sometimes their level of money is a different reality. But then, you know, I worked for the Detroit Lions in 1999. The guys I keep in touch with from that team, you know, they're still working. Now they're working guys with regular jobs and with kids and with families. So they're, they're human beings um, with human being problems. And I think that's the uh, – so, it, you know, not to pull down the – you know, pull the curtain back too much, but I had no fear of what I'd find out because they're the same as anybody else. And that's the good and the bad of people. So uh, that's my answer for that one. So, no, there was no concern on that. And it's funny because I've written a book about Notre Dame, which I grew up uh, a fan of and and went there, and people sort of have this thing. But I don't – I mean, you've read it. I don't think this stuff comes across. I'm not a fanboy as a journalist. No, not at all. You know, you you separate the two. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like you, I root for good content, and it's always good. You know, I have no issue saying I root for good people. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going to cheer for good people in the world for however long it goes. Anything else that you want to add before we uh, we ha- sign off? No, I feel I've, I've answered a lot. I feel my answers have probably been way too long. I was looking for you to cut me Not off a few times. No, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm only half kidding. No, James, I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks a lot, and I appreciate your read and take on it. And And I enjoy what you're doing covering the team. I love it. I appreciate it, too. The book is Big Blue Wrecking Crew. The author is Jerry Barca. It's a great read. Go buy it. Jerry, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Jerry. The book, Big Blue Wrecking Crew, all about the 1986 New York Giants. It's a great read. If you're a Giants fan, you should definitely go pick it up. Check it out. That's it for this bonus edition of the Talk is Cheap podcast. As always, we will be back early next week after the Giants play at the Vikings on Monday Night Football. Thanks, as always, for listening to Talk is Cheap. We'll see you next time.